Dear Father, we come to you in the name of Christ with thankful hearts that we are part of your kingdom. And we know, Lord, that your kingdom is yet to come in the sense of the eternal picture that we read about in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. And yet, Lord, the kingdom of God has already been established, and it is in our hearts as we have come to Christ. And Father, I pray for the continued extension of your kingdom through us, that our lives will minister the truth and reflect the glory of your name to others. Lord, bless this morning. I pray that every class that is going on at this hour will, will experience the moving of your spirit. Lord, speak through your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is truth. And we submit to its authority. And we ask, Father, that you will bring glory to your name in our presence here and touch our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to read again in Genesis chapter 19, the last paragraph, that is chapter, uh, verses 30 through 38 of Genesis 19. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Not exactly, of course, one of the most uplifting passages of Scripture, but nevertheless here for our edification. God's word is truth from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. We saw at the end of class last time that Lot finally did go to the mountains. The only thing the scripture tells us is that he went there because he was afraid. What the other details were, what made him afraid, is not given for us here. Uh, probably the situation in Zoar was not to his liking, and maybe the people were not particularly appreciative of his presence, but whatever was the cause, he moved into the mountains, and since there were no other dwellings in the mountains where he was. He moved into a cave. Now, if you are at all familiar with the land of Canaan, uh, the land of Israel today, there are lots of caves in that land, and particularly when you get to the southern part of the Arabah. There are numerous caves, hundreds of caves, and this has, of course, been one of the reasons why in times past, Brigands and uh, highwaymen and others have been hard to purge from the land because there were many caves in which they could hide. And so 
he probably was able to find uh, an unlived in, not previously occupied, at least not occupied at the moment, cave in which to live. Now, I think what's more, most critical about this passage is the obvious fact that he had not taught his daughters about the God that he himself, of course, seems to have been living in rebellion against. Now, that's kind of a convoluted sentence, but at least you got the point, I hope. The daughters were very concerned about living in the wilderness, living out of the contact of other people, and as they said, there's not a man on earth who will come into us after the way of the earth. They were fearful of living out their lives without husbands. And I mentioned last time that maybe it was because they wouldn't have a dowry. Who knows what exactly was the thought in the minds of these two young ladies. But their rationalization was, well, since we won't, will probably grow old without child, we better preserve our father's family name by raising up children to our father. Satan is always there, it seems, at every point of crisis to try to lead people down the path to destruction, to make the wrong choices, to make those choices which will most often cause, in his mind, in Satan's mind anyway, the kingdom of God to be harmed. God is very specific about his commands, and uh, the scripture is very clear. And when we don't listen to the scripture, we pay, as would these people. We noted last time, and I think that at the end of class, we, led, we read from Psalm 34. And that's a very wonderful psalm, and uh, most of us, I trust, are familiar with it. Because the truth of that psalm is that God is with his people. And he will not allow his people to be destroyed. He will be with them. He meets the crushed and the brokenhearted at the point of their need. And he's there to, to minister to us in our crises. We do not have to compromise. We do not have to say, woe is me, I can't handle this. I just better uh, do the best that human wisdom uh, uh, guides me at this particular moment. That was the problem here. And that's the problem we're going to see as we get into the next chapter. He trusted, in this case, Lot and, and then his daughters, and then later on Abraham and Sarah again, trusted in human wisdom, in human decisions, rather than really believing God, trusting God. And I think these are the messages that have got to come through to us today. God wants us to trust him. God wants us to believe in him and to know that no matter how difficult the situation, no matter how foreboding the future may seem, God has not abandoned his people. And, you know, by extraction, there are many who are very dismayed by the new administration that has been established in Washington and by the quick movement to do those things which most of us as evangelical Christians feel is morally... Uh, unrighteous, and yet we cannot throw up our hands in utter despair and, and wring our hands or any of these things because God has not abandoned the situation. It's not out of his control. Uh, God, our God reigns. We sing that song, our God reigns. Do we mean it or do we believe it? Yes, he is in charge. And I think that 
in spite of the efforts put out by many, and, and I'm not saying those efforts aren't good, the real key effort that God's people have got to put out is the effort of prayer because that's what makes a difference. Yes, sometimes we have to physically confront, sometimes they have to speak out, but the primary uh, factor by which things are changed, by which God's kingdom is advanced, is through prayer. And without that, we might as well forget doing the rest of it, because it's not going to amount to a hill of beans. This particular Psalm 34, of course, was not written in Lot's day, nor was any other scripture written in Lot's day. So Lot couldn't flip through the scripture and, and read a passage that would be for him. But the truth of God's word is eternal. And the truth of God's word had been already revealed beginning with Adam and Eve and had been carried down through word of mouth. And God had revealed himself to Abraham and had spoken directly to Abraham. And Lot knew of this. And so Lot knew of the character of God, but he was not believing in that God. Well, we had a basic faith because the scripture in the New Testament, as we've noted several times, calls him a righteous man. But he wasn't acting in righteousness. And of course, he had not taught his daughters to do so. God had rescued Lot from an impossible situation before. He had had a powerful example. He was being carried off into captivity. He, he would probably never have been heard of again. And yet God sent Abraham with his small force to defeat a much larger, larger force of Chedorlaomer. And what could this have been but a powerful testimony to Lot as well as to the other people of Sodom and Gomorrah of the strength and power and the concern of the Almighty. And yet that was either forgotten or ignored. Lot's failures in this situation were, I think, at least three. First, he did not teach his family to trust in God. That seems to come through from what we see. His wife so longs to go back that she perishes. His two daughters choose to do what is patently vile uh, to try to rectify what they thought would be an impossible situation. He had not taken, secondly, he had not taken his daughters to the security of Abraham. He could have done that. Instead of fleeing off to Zoar, he could have said, let me flee to the mountains towards Abraham. And the angels would have said, sure, <laughs> great, go. I, I believe that. And yet he made no move towards Abraham at all, uh, where there would have been security, where there would have been opportunity for the daughters certainly to have found a husband. And lastly, his failure was in allowing himself to get drunk. Why does anyone get drunk? Why does anyone drink an alcoholic beverage to the point where they begin to lose sensibility, to become inebriated? Uh, well, there are trite and frivolous reasons, certainly, uh, to try to outdrink somebody else or just to keep up with the, quote, Joneses or whatever. But I think, really, the primary reasons that a person seriously does this is to drown himself to cover his loneliness, to cover inadequacy, to deal with dejection by simply zoning out, just disappearing from the whole situation. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a denial. It's a form of denial. And really, it's the ultimate expression of self-pity when it's seriously done. And obviously, all of these were true for Lot. And so, this is what happens. He allows his daughters to 
lead him into this particular situation. Now, obviously, in order for this to happen, they had to have with them a certain amount of wine, right? Uh, and they couldn't have made the wine because uh, they were living in a cave and uh, they didn't have any orchards around or vineyards, I guess I should say. But, uh, well, it's possible, I suppose, that they bought or swiped some grapes to do it, but it took, takes a little while for it to uh, ferment. They probably brought the wine with them either from... Sodom or from Zoar. Now notice something very interesting here. Lot's daughters, the scripture tells us, were virgins. And yet they knew how to ply their father with alcohol to get him to perform a sexual act that conscious and sober he would not, certainly not have done. Sodom had made its mark on the girls. They knew the ways of the world. Now, it's true that close marriages were acceptable to some extent. Abraham was married to his half-sister, as an example. But this type of incest is generally not even acceptable in pagan heathen cultures. Some of you are probably familiar with Don Richardson's book, lords of the earth. And in the first scenario that he paints in that particular book, he describes a situation where a man and a girl who were related, and it wasn't father-daughter, I think it was uncle-niece, uh, were only suspected of having had an incestuous relationship in this pagan heathen society, and they killed both of them. So many, many pagan societies consider incest to be a vile thing, and yet here these gals are uh, perpetrating this uh, with their father. But of course, the argument was this is the lesser of the two evils. It's a greater evil in their thought, in their mind, for their father to go without heir, for his name to disappear on the surface of the earth, and for them to grow up without children to take care of them in their old age. No Social Security in those days. Social Security actually doesn't really take care of you in your old age anyway, does it? Uh, you still need flesh and blood. And uh, they were fearful of achieving old age without, any, without children for security. And as a result of their plan, both girls became pregnant by their father. Think about it for a minute. As far as we know, the, the scripture seems to indicate they each went into their father one time, which means that they had to be in the exact, almost exactly the same in their cycles, and they had to, you know, it had to be a very narrow window in which they went into their father, and the, everything had to work out. I mean, he wasn't a young man. In fact, they call their father old. How old was he? We, we don't know. Uh, Abraham at this time is going on 100. Lot is his nephew, but Lot was probably his nephew by an older brother. So Lot was probably not terribly much younger than uh, Abraham, probably not more than 20 years younger anyway. And so, you know, it's getting on there for him too. 
and yet both of them conceive. It seems to indicate here as a result of the one encounter with their father for each of the two girls. Now, God could have prevented that. <laughs> God could have not allowed pregnancy to result, but God didn't stop it. God allowed it to take place. There are those, as you well know from your own study and, and, and being aware of what's going on in the theological realm, who argue back and forth about what the sovereignty of God actually means. Certainly, this didn't happen beyond God's sovereignty. God didn't look down and say, oops, I goofed. <laughs> I didn't intervene here and stop this from happening. Obviously not. God, by choice, allowed it to happen. This is an expression of his sovereignty. When we are in rebellion, God often allows the consequences of our sin to flourish. The scripture teaches us that whatsoever we sow, we reap. And that is true for Christian and non-Christian. If we sow love, we reap love. If we sow peace, we reap peace. But if we sow rebellion, we reap rebellion and the fruits of it. And so it would be for Lot and his two daughters. Remember Abraham. We haven't gotten to this yet, but uh, I, I'm sorry, we already have gotten to this. Uh, we haven't gotten to the, the problem it results in yet, but Abraham stopped listening to God and took matters into his own hand, and as a result, Ishmael was born. And Ishmael would prove ultimately to be a great pain to the Hebrew nation. And the same, of course, is true of this particular passage. This passage doesn't say it, but it implies in verses 37 and 38 the problems that would come on down the line. The one daughter would bear a son who became named Moab and the other Ben-Ami. And the passage tells us that Moab became the father of the Moabites and Ben-Ami became the father of the sons of Ammon. And these people became deadly enemies of Israel in the days ahead. In fact, from the time of the Exodus on, they would be a great pain uh, to Israel. And, of course, the Moabites and the Ammonites are certainly within the ancestors of the modern Arabic peoples. We need to, I, I, we talked, I think, a little bit about this before, but we need to remember that the Arabs are not a homogenous people. The term Arab is kind of an eclectic term. Oh, it, it had a more specific uh, origin, but it has come to be a very eclectic term. And we talk about Arabs in, in Iraq and Arabs in Syria and Arabs in Arabia and Arabs in Egypt and Arabs across North Africa. Uh, and, and the word Arab is, is kind of an all-encompassing term. And back, the background of the modern Arabs includes many, many, many ethnic and uh, linguistic peoples who, who merge together ultimately. And if you read or you remember the account of Lawrence of Arabia, uh, he went over there during World War I to try to bring these numerous feuding Arab tribes together in support of the British cause against the Turks. And he, he saw a measure of success in that. What has, of course, brought a degree of unity to the Arabic peoples has been their faith, Islam. But uh, they still don't exactly cooperate, right? Or we wouldn't have had Iraq invading Kuwait and uh, Egypt siding with uh, Kuwait and all of the uh, problems that have resulted. The Arabs have notably 
uh, been very <laughs> much at each other's throat down through history. So they have a multitude of uh, ancestors to this Arabic line, and certain the Moabites and the Ammonites are in there somewhere amongst them. Now, what problem would these people be? Well, we're familiar with many of them. Let me just point out a couple here. In 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle. I'm sorry. Well, that's all right, too, because <laughs> I'm, I'm in the wrong book, but let me just finish that one. <laughs> that Joab led out an army and ravaged the lands of the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem, and we know what happened from that, but uh, that's not our point right now. But again, war with Ammon. But 2 Chronicles 20 was what I wanted. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Menuites, <coughs> Menunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Amongst the many peoples who were the enemies of the Hebrew nation were the Moabites and the Ammonites. And, of course, we remember what happened uh, when the uh, children of Israel were on the plains of Moab getting ready to cross over into the Promised Land. Some of the Moabites came down and started to seduce some of the Israelites, and God had to deal with that. Later on, that's a thousand years after this time, and, and 400 years beyond that, we have the statement made in Ezra 9.1. Uh, now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. So amongst the many pagan peoples that were not to be uh, the, the Israelites were not to practice miscegenation with were the Moabites and the Ammonites. Why? Because they, they taught abominations to the children of Israel. The Moabites and the Ammonites were an idolatrous, idolatrous people. They lived in what is today modern Jordan. They lived up on the top of the plateau to the east of the Jordan River. The Ammonites almost directly across from the top end of the Dead Sea and north, and then the Moabites immediately from the top end down a ways towards the land of Edom. Uh, they lived in those particular areas and were constantly a nuisance, uh, if not a deadly threat, to the people of Israel. Now, God gave to these sons of Lot this land. He, he gave to them this place to live. And he gave them an opportunity to serve him. God blessed the sons of this incest. It wasn't their fault that they were born this way. But he blessed them in giving them a land and protecting them and giving them opportunity to turn to the true and the living God, which they did not. Not that none did, but most didn't. He prevented Israel from attacking them. When the Israelites crossed uh, from the uh, Red Sea into the Sinai and then began the final movement up the east side of the Jordan to come across and attack Jericho, 
In the process of coming through that land, he denied them the right of attacking either the Moabites or the Ammonites. And the reason is given specifically. Let me read it in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who, lived, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath, and from Ezion-Geber. And we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, but I, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. And then down further uh, in verse 19, And when you come opposite, the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. God gave them the land. It was to be their possession. It was God's mercy upon these people. And they were not left landless. And yet, the point was, ultimately, they would recognize that it came from God and they would turn to him. He knew, of course, basically, that they would not accept certain individuals. Now, God would not prevent the Israelites from taking the land of the Amorites further to the north, all the way up into the southern borders of modern-day Syria. They would conquer the land to the north of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites, but they wouldn't take that block of land there. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites were lined up, three peoples like beads on the string, along, along the top ridge and down the slopes of the um, east side of the Arabah there. But north of that, hey, it was open season on the Amorites. Now, something very interesting here that comes from silence. Nothing is said about Lot's reaction to this whole thing. Does Lot become horrified when he discovers that his two daughters are pregnant? I mean, he's living in this cave with the two daughters, and if they didn't tell him what happened, because it says he didn't know when they, when they uh, lay down with him, he didn't know when they got up. I mean, this guy was zoned. Yet, if, if they had not told him, then suddenly they start showing their pregnancy. What is he going to think? It's going to dawn on him pretty soon that something here has happened and this is not good. But the scripture is absolutely silent about Lot's reaction. Nothing is said. It just simply says, this happened and these boys were born. Interesting, isn't it? Also interesting was the fact that you have almost a 50-50 chance uh, for the two children to be girls. They didn't have to be boys but they turned out to be, in both cases, males. And uh, after all, <laughs> Lot's only children were what? Daughters. Before this. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, by his wife. And yet by his daughters, sons are born. Uh, I think even more amazing beyond this is that Lot is never again mentioned in Genesis nor the Pentateuch, except the one passage we just read by inference, the sons of Lot. Uh, but Lot is not again mentioned. He just disappears. <laughs> just, he's gone. 
we can read a lot into that if we want to. We can say, well, that's because he lost his salvation, or, you know, a lot of things can be said. And I don't think that we can put any kind of uh, uh, trust in, in that kind of uh, uh, guesswork. Uh, it simply means that this man had no more role to play in, in the scheme of God's plan, at least as it was expressed through God's Word. Well, we will now hasten on to chapter 20. Somebody this morning asked me if we'd finish Genesis within 10 years. <laughs> I said, oh yes, much sooner than that. I mean, we're approaching 40% of the way through, so that's pretty good. Chapter 20, I'd like to read the first seven verses. I've entitled this Deja Vu in Philistia. <laughs> and going by the second definition in the dictionary of Deja Vu, the first definition is that it's the actual coming uh, into reality of something that only happened in imagination before. <laughs> That's not what happened here. The second definition is the repeat of a bad incident, <laughs> uh, or by, you know, usually bad. Now Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech the king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Oh, brother. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. To me, this is one of the most insightful passages of Scripture. Insightful into... Uh, uh, the actions that, that, a, that a godly man and woman can do uh, to what God thinks about institutions like marriage, uh, to how God in His mercy continues to allow a person to serve Him in an in in important spiritual role in spite of, of tremendous failure. Uh, there are so many things in this particular seven verses that I think are really important <laughs> to us. But first, let's look at uh, the um, movement here. We, we don't really know for sure how many years uh, they lived at Hebron, but Abraham now moves his household again. He moves from the mountaintop at Hebron at over 3,000 feet in elevation down south into the Negev and across the Negev to the, the, the southwestern extremity of the Negev. Now, has he done this before? Yep. Remember in chapter 12? As he passed through the land, he, he stopped it along the way uh, and uh, made the great profession at Bethel and 
continued on south and end up, ended up at the Negev, right? And from there he went on down to Egypt, and we remember that little escapade. And he came back out of Egypt, back to the Negev again, and, and then he went north back into the mountain at Bethel. So in chapter 12 and chapter 13, we have him twice in the Negev, once going south, the other coming back north. Now why he made the move, the scripture doesn't say. Here at all. It could be that he needed more room for his flocks. They were getting to be too numerous. God was blessing him and his sheep and his cattle were multiplying and it was becoming a real problem to, to feed them. And as a result of that, he may have been having all kinds of friction with his neighbors. Even with the men who had been his allies, it could be that, that uh, problems were arising because of, uh, of the growth of his flocks, the growth of his wealth, possibly because of his profession of faith and worship of God that, that they didn't believe in. We, we have no idea. We're only speculating here to try to determine why he moved. All we know is the scripture does not say that God told him to move. Now that doesn't mean God didn't necessarily. But there is no statement there in Scripture indicating that God said, I would like for you now to move into the Negev, and then from there, I would like you to move to Gerar. Whatever was the reason, he makes this approximately 90-mile move from Hebron, south, somewhat west, and the Scripture tells us that he moved to a place between Kadesh and the wilderness of Shur, Kadesh Barnea, which is deep south of Beersheba, and then the wilderness of Shur, which is in the northern Sinai, so sort of angling over to the southwest, down in that particular area. And we don't know how long he was there. Probably a few months. And then he moved back north again, almost due north, uh, to, Shur, uh, to, to Gerar. And as you go through this, to a uh, 20th chapter, we almost find a blow-by-blow -blow repetition of chapter, the last half of chapter 12 in the events which follow. He moved to the outskirts of Gerar. Now, Gerar was, most believe, was located about half a dozen miles south of Gaza. And we're all familiar with a little bit about Gaza, aren't we? Uh, it's in the news quite a bit these days. This particular location is in the northwest corner of the Negev. Gerar was a city-state, apparently. Uh, a town and the environments around were ruled by this particular man whose title was Abimelech. Now, I say title because it's used of others. It's sort of more or less the equivalent of Pharaoh, not directly equivalent, but in the sense of being a title of a ruler. Uh, the word literally means father of a king or maybe father king, Abimelech. This 60-mile move that he made going from the wilderness of Shur, the edge there, back to Gerar, may again have been made for the purposes of finding better pasture for his animals. You get out in the dry areas and the sheep pretty well clean it off in a hurry. And so he may have needed better pasturage for his animals. And Gerar was located in a, a fertile basin. According to the geologists, the soil there is what's known as loess, L-O-E-S-S, which is a wind-blown uh, soil, which is very, very fine and is often quite fertile. 
Most of us may be familiar with the Las Basins of China, where the, it's a very angular uh, type fine <laughs> soil that can stack, stack up so that you can chop into it like you can uh, really cold snow. And you can literally carve houses out of it. And that's what happens in China up in the Ordos Basin uh, in the uh, uh, northern part of the uh, red of the Yellow River, Huanhe River. Uh, when they have those major earthquakes up in there, it, it brings all the houses down. And they've killed, they've killed as many as 800,000. No, they haven't. But I mean, the earthquakes have killed as many as 800,000 people living in these homes carved right out of the same kind of soil. Well, they weren't living in the soil here, but the uh, soil was such that it uh, facilitated the growth of grass. And the rainfall is a little bit more abundant in that particular uh, part. The further north you go, the more abundant is the rainfall in this particular area because the great storms that are spun out of what's known as the Icelandic a low pressure area, like for us, it's the Aleutian low, and, and we know all about, you know, the jet stream being here and there and the high pressures and sometimes we get the storms and sometimes we don't. Well, it's the same is true over there. And as the storms come sweeping uh, across Europe and through the Mediterranean, often they are forced north and they don't get as far south as the Sinai Peninsula and so it's, it's a relatively arid area. But the further north you go, the more the rainfall picks up. And so in the northern Negev, the grass is a little bit more mu uh, lush, <laughs> mush lush than it is uh, uh, in, the, in the south. Now, interestingly enough, there is no reference in this passage to the name Philistine. But many scholars do believe that uh, we're talking about the Philistines here and that Abimelech or Abimelech was a Philistine because of the reference in the 21st chapter of Genesis in verse 32 uh, where it says, So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now, of course, that can be an anachronism. It can just be a reference to what later is the name of the area. Uh, just like referring to Ur of the Chaldees seems to be a later reference to a land which wasn't called Ur of the Chaldees in the days that Abraham was there, but we don't know that for sure but some think that. Uh, but it seems quite probable that we are talking about the early Philistines here, and that's, that, that was what Abimelech and his people were. Now, let me just read a verse from the 10th chapter, which we covered a while back. 10th chapter uh, of Genesis, verse 14, where it says, And Pathrusim and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines, now, certain peoples were specifically mentioned because of the role they would play in later Hebrew history. From this, we discover that the Philistines were descendants of Ham. So they were Hamitic through Mizraim and his grandson, Kasluhim. Now, where did they come from before they came to the land of Canaan? Let me read a verse to you from Amos, chapter 9, verse 7. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kir? Now, that may not be terribly insightful 
to us until we recognize that Kaftor is Crete. Kaftor is the ancient biblical name for the island of Crete. Now Crete, if you remember, is an island that's oriented east-west. It's kind of long, narrow island oriented east-west at the very bottom of the Aegean Sea. In fact, it marks the bottom, bottom perimeter of the Aegean Sea. North of that island is the so-called Greek world. And that's the heartland, the, uh, the uh, cradle of the Greek civilization. And we're told, therefore, that the Philistines came from the island of Crete. And this is supported by historical records, uh, other historical records, I should say. The ancient Egyptians have left behind records indicating that uh, there was a general category of peoples which they refer to as the sea peoples, S-E-A, people coming out of the sea, who came down and attacked Egypt at various times uh, in the ancient history of Egypt, probably mostly Middle Kingdom time, but they were repulsed, uh, apparently, by the Egyptians. And they, they came in successive waves, much like the later Vikings when they moved out of Scandinavia as they attacked Europe. They didn't all at once just boil out and attack Europe. They came a few at a time, a few at a time in various waves of assault that took place over two or three centuries. And so it uh, apparently was with these sea people. Uh, they came in small groups and larger groups, but they didn't all come at once. And as they crossed the Mediterranean and attacked Egypt, they rebounded and as they went a little bit to the north of Egypt, they found the southern coast of Canaan much easier to assault, less well defended. The people who lived there were not unified. And so they were able to establish themselves on the southern coast of Canaan around 2000 B.C. seems to be when the first of them moved into this particular area. Now, we know from the scripture during the days of the judges that they were noted for being an iron-using people and possibly an, actually an iron-manufacturing people. Now, they didn't invent the uh, processing of iron. We know historically that the Hittites seem to have been the originators of iron processing, at least as far as the Near Eastern world was concerned. And of course, the Hittites lived up in Asia Minor, not far away from where the Philistines uh, had their homeland. So maybe there was some kind of contact there, although it's difficult to say for sure. The ultimate result of the coming of the Philistines or the Sea Peoples to this area was the creation of a five-city confederation. Uh, and, and we're familiar with those through our later study of the Old Testament. And uh, remember cities like Gath and Ekron and Ashkelon and so forth, which were the major cities of this five-city confederation. Gerar was not one of those later five cities, but was apparently an important city early on in the history of Philistine occupation of this particular area. Now, later the Philistines would become a giant thorn in the sides of the people of Israel, right? Uh, you remember the account with uh, Samson and how much of a problem they were in his day and uh, what he endeavored to do to rectify that uh, himself. The power of the Philistines would constantly be a threat until the days of David, and it would be David who would finally smash the power of the, Philippi <laughs> of the Philippines, of the Philistines. 
because God enabled him to, to do that. And it was part of the judgment on Philistia for the evil that had been brought upon the people of God. But to me, it is so interesting to note that later on in history, let me just run this by you real quickly. In 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans under Titus. About 65 years later, uh, the Jews again went in rebellion, and the Romans came back and with great difficulty smashed the power of the Jews again. And then what they did was to make Jerusalem off-limits to the Jews. And ultimately, they tried to make the whole of, 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 of Canaan off-limit to the Jews in retribution for their rebellion. And so what they did was consciously rename the country. It was no longer Judea, as it had been in the days of Pontius Pilate, but the whole land became known as the land of the Philistines, or as we refer to it today, Palestine. So the common name that has been used through most of the two millennia since then comes from the Philistines. Palestine simply means land of the Philistines, who, have, who are long gone uh, from this uh, particular area, but their name has been retained. Now, probably the modern Palestinians have no connection back with the ancient Philistines. Now, we can't say that with absolute surety, obviously, but the ancient Philistines were Hamites, and the modern Palestinians are Semites. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody of Hamitic linguistic origin couldn't have, through intermarriage, lost his Hamitic roots and, and intermarried with the Semitic uh, peoples, and thus there's a bloodline there. But there's no clear, uh, uh, important connection between the uh, ancient Philistines and the modern Palestinians, although the names have been preserved, right? You still talk about Gaza and Ashkelon and, and the cities of the southern part of the plain of Canaan. In Abraham's day, the Philistines had not yet developed into a national power. Uh, and so we're not talking about a great threat to anybody. They were like the rest of Canaan at this time, just, just badly divided, small little principalities and city-states, often mutually antagonistic one to the other. Now, the, the important point of this passage isn't, isn't this historical or geographic matter. That just gives us, to me, the playing field upon which we operate, the stage upon which we discover the truth that God is trying to teach us. Now, as we look at the events of this passage, and as we think about Abraham, and as we think about Sarah, and we think about Abimelech, and what God did here and what they did, we have to, I believe, start out with an honest look at ourselves. We must be willing to admit that we are a sinful people, that we are capable of sin each and every day, and that we are capable of repetitive sin of doing the same thing, even though we've seen it to be sin and repented of it, to do it yet again another time, and who knows, maybe many, many times. With that in our minds, it's a lot easier for us to understand how it is that Abraham and Sarah could go back with eyes open and commit an overt, and obviously what's going to be, because it had been before, embarrassing sin. To be willing to take the chance now, true, 25 years had passed. But in those 25 years, do you think they forgot what happened in Egypt? No way. 
I mean, just remember back the, at the embarrassing things that have happened in your life. Do you forget them? No. Uh, you may forget a lot of the good things, but there are things that just pop out into your mind from your life in which you can say, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Uh, why did that happen to me? They hadn't forgotten. They knew it quite well. You would think, of course, that the humiliating rebuke at the hands of a pagan pharaoh would have caused them to reject that possible sin forever and ever. Never be caught in that trap again. However, as we read this passage, I think we should have, first of all, sadness that Abraham and Sarah would be caught in this, uh, this mire again. But at the same time, we need to have an awareness that the same can happen to us. Take heed, the scripture says, lest ye fall. As we go around being used to minister to others, and as we may be used at sometimes, sometimes by God to even confront someone in their sin, take heed lest we fall. All of us are capable of pretty awful stuff when you think about it. We often, do we not, repeatedly fail. And we had what Abraham and Sarah did not have. We have the whole counsel of God's Word. We have Genesis through Revelation. We have all that God has intended to say to the human race here before us. And, and there's none of it that we cannot study and learn from. And yet we can fail as badly as Abraham and Sarah failed. And we can do so repeatedly. And as we do so, it will do to us as it did to them. It will weaken our relationship with him and can make us the laughing stock of the pagan world. It can make the church the laughing stock of the pagan world. Have you noticed with what glee the newspapers and news magazines write about the failure of Christian leaders when they fall? I mean, it's, 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 it's like they gloat over it. Like, like jackals on the carcass of a zebra. Yes? Um, I don't understand why Abraham would have said she's my sister rather than my wife anyway. Wouldn't her being his wife protect her more? His sis as a sister, she'd be vulnerable to being used. Right. Exactly the so point. what was the reasoning? The reasoning was the same as the reasoning when he went into Egypt, and that is, Pharaoh will so want my wife that he will kill me to get her. Because, you see, if she's a widow, then she's vulnerable also. Mm -hmm. So that was his fear for his own life. Is that a common thing to occur, that people would kill a husband to take a wife? Apparently, when it comes to people of such power as a king, we don't have a lot of historical records from this time to go by, but we assume from the fact that harems were very common in those wor worlds, and in that world, and that uh, kings were very, very powerful, that such a thing probably did happen. And obviously it must have happened at least in, in Abraham's knowledge, because that was his fear. And when we went through the whole deal in the 12th chapter, uh, we pointed out again, as happened here, that Sarah was, uh, uh, you know, she was 
she took part in it. She didn't say, I'm not going to say I'm your sister when I'm your wife. What are you, a jerk? You know, she could have said that and she'd have been right. But she didn't. Because Abimelech here, as he responds to God's, God's accusation, says, she said he is my brother. So they both participated in what took place here. But that's, it, that's a very good point. And, uh, but like I say, uh, it's easy for us with hindsight to say, what a dumb thing to do. <laughs> but when you're in the situation, sometimes it doesn't look so dumb. In the second verse of this passage, we find, and oh, I guess we better, I better wrap it up here. We find that Abraham and Sarah told the same exact lie that they had told to Pharaoh. And why? Because Satan was playing on the same old fears that Abraham had before and was intimidating him into acting in human strength and wisdom rather than in trusting God. And that is an ever-repeated scenario. In every one of our lives, Satan will do the same thing. He will come along and attempt to intimidate us to compromise, intimidate us to think in the ways of the world rather than trust God. And the scripture is constantly telling us, trust in him. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him. Not just in some of them. I'll acknowledge you here, Lord, because I'm at church and I need to acknowledge you and I'll acknowledge you here and there and everywhere else. But when it comes to investing my money, I'm going to seek the best wisdom out there in the world and invest my money according to that rather than come to you and seek your wisdom in doing that or, you know, whatever it might be. All our ways were to acknowledge him. And that, of course, Abraham knew that truth even though he didn't have Proverbs in front of him. Uh, but the truth was the same. And he knew that. And really, he had no reason to be intimidated because he probably possessed more military power than Abimelech had. Probably that was true. And I think Abimelech knew what happened to Chedorlaomer. That kind of news doesn't just, you know, stay in a little spot. The grapevine worked well in those days, too. And, you know, and who knows how it was blown out of proportion. And maybe that is really the reason why Abimelech wanted Sarah. But we'll talk about that. Two weeks from today, we'll, we'll pick this up.